I'm Katie Ganaway, and you're listening to the Public Radio Hour. Scary edition. On 89.3 FM HD1 WLRH. This episode, don your proton packs and delight in haunting tales of the supernatural with Theater Huntsville and their series, Stories by Ghostlight. They revisit one fateful stormy night aboard the Eliza Battle. Soon the blazing hull drifted downstream and the bitter coal closed in on the survivors. And we hear a woman unleash her wrath to avenge the death of her family. And with a creak of rope and a crack of gunpowder, the mild-mannered Jane Brooks became the vengeful Aunt Jenny. Plus, Sundial writer Sarah McDerris leaves us shaking in our boots. And Oakwood University's Jason Max Ferdinand and Stephen Murphy tell us about their brush with death. That's here on a special Halloween edition of the Public Radio Hour. Stay tuned. Don't look under the bed. It's the Halloween edition of the Public Radio Hour. Tonight, my job is to bring you the macabre. I'm Katie Ganaway. Tonight's episode, Oakwood University Aeolians conductors and producers of a new self-titled CD, Jason Max Ferdinand and Stephen Murphy, join Morning Blend host Dory Nutt to talk about narrowly avoiding an untimely death, as well as their new music, So Good It'll Lift Your Spirits. Sundial Writer's Corner contributor Sarah McDerris regales us with a traditional Scottish tale of how a weeping widow found her lost love. And buckle up, because Theater Huntsville will scare the pants off of you when you hear about the revenge of Aunt Jenny. But first, local legend, master of storytelling, and Jeffrey the Ghost's best ghoul friend, Catherine Tucker Wyndham, always leaves you wanting more. So sit a spell for a KTW fable performed by Theater Huntsville's Darren Wyndham. This is The Phantom Steamboat of the Tom Bigby. Phantom Steamboat of the Tom Bigby by Catherine Tucker Wyndham. When the late winter rains send the Tom Bigby River out of its banks at Nanafalia, Tuscahoma, Nahaola, and Yellow Bluff, there sometimes rises out of the muddy water a ghost ship, the charred hull of a side wheel steamer. On those stormy nights, some folks along the river say they hear the gay music of a steam calliope and others report hearing agonizing cries for help blown on a cold river wind. It's the Eliza battle, whisper the folks who see the phantom boat and who hear the eerie sounds. It's the Eliza battle trying to finish her trip down to Mobile. Something terrible is going to happen. For always, the appearance of the phantom ship has heralded tragedy. Superstitious rivermen who see the ghostly hull rise from the water leave the river for safer jobs ashore. They know that the Eliza battle is warning them that the treacherous Tom Bigby will claim their lives just as it claimed the lives of passengers and crew on the Eliza battle. The Eliza battle was one of the grandest steamers on the Tom Bigby. Built in New Albany, Indiana in 1852, she was a palatial boat and her trips up and down the Tom Bigby created excitement wherever she stopped. And no trip was so fine or so grand as her last, the one that began in late February, 1858. The Eliza Battle's trip down to Mobile had been advertised for weeks with circulars, handbills, and newspaper ads. 
In addition to the customary luxuries, the passengers were promised two bands to provide continuous music in the ballroom, glowing lanterns to decorate the entire ship at night, colorful flags and bunting draped and festooned on every deck, a calliope to play the latest tunes and welcoming celebrations at landings all along the way. So an eager and carefree crowd of passengers was attracted aboard the Eliza Battle, bound for Mobile and the gaiety of that port city. At Columbus, they began to assemble. Ladies wearing full skirts, so fashionable then, and carrying tiny parasols, chatted excitedly as they boarded the boat. Behind them came their personal maids, and behind the maids came burly porters carrying trunks and valises and hat boxes. On the wharf, the men, plantation owners all, supervised the loading of their bales of cotton. Taking the cotton down to Mobile to sell provided their excuse for the trip. Carriages came from plantations throughout the area, and each group of new arrivals sparked fresh merriment as friends and relatives who had not seen each other in many months were reunited aboard the Eliza Battle. When the last bale of cotton had been loaded and the last valise had been put into the staterooms, some observers feared the cargo was just a little too heavy. The band struck up a lively tune. The deep voice whistles sounded and the crowd cheered as the Eliza battle pulled away from the wharf and headed downstream. The scene was repeated on a smaller scale at landing after landing as up in the pilot house, Daniel Epps guided the Eliza battle down the river toward Mobile. Crowds of people bundled in wraps as protection against the increasing cold waited along the banks of the river to cheer and wave as the Eliza battle passed and their salutes were acknowledged by shrill trills from the calliope. After nightfall, some spectators set off rockets and other fireworks as the Eliza battle went steaming past. Epps, a veteran pilot, was uneasy. The high water had covered many of his navigation points, and the heavily loaded vessel was difficult to handle in the swift current. The strong and bitterly cold wind blowing rain in from the northwest added to his apprehension. Then, about nightfall, the rain turned to sleet mixed with snow as the temperature continued to drop rapidly. Captain S.G. Stone, master of the Eliza battle, joined Epps in the pilot house, and together they peered through the storm for familiar lights and landmarks. The sandbars and the shoals were covered by the swirling waters, and even the tall trees along the banks of the river were half submerged. The river seemed to stretch endlessly in all directions. Epps relied on his knowledge and experience to keep the Eliza battle in the main channel. He checked Mrs. Kemp's landing on his chart as the boat moved past that point, and he breathed a prayer of gratitude for safe passage that far. But he became increasingly anxious. The uneasiness of the pilot and the concern of the captain were not shared by the passengers. The brilliant lights in the ballroom pushed back all awareness of the menacing darkness outside, and the music of the bands drowned out the noise of the slashing storm. Long after midnight, the dancing continued as the partners whirled and glided on the polished floor. Then, above the music and the laughter came the cries of, Fire! Fire! The music, the laughter, and the dancing stopped. Men and women rushed for the exits, 
Even before they reached the deck, flames were leaping from blazing cotton bales and racing through the engine room, the cabins, and the gangways. Captain Stone ordered the pilot to run the boat into the riverbank, but the tiller rope had been burned and Epps could not carry out the order. The Eliza battle, ablaze from bow to stern, drifted crazily with the current. Passengers jumped into the icy water as they tried to escape the advancing flames. Some of them threw bales of cotton off the deck and attempted to use them for life rafts. Those who could swim fought the current to find temporary safety in the tops of the nearly submerged trees where they clung to the limbs and prayed to be rescued before they froze. For a little while, the flames from the burning boat lighted the scene, but soon the blazing hull drifted downstream and the darkness and the bitter cold closed in on the survivors. From the darkness came pitiful cries for help and prayers for deliverance. There were other sounds too, the heavy splashes of frozen bodies dropping into the river from the trees. But the tragedy produced its heroes. Among them was Frank Stone, second clerk of the boat, who swam ashore carrying to safety a child of Mr. and Mrs. Bat Cromwell of Mobile. He then placed a Miss Turner on a bale of cotton and guided her to the riverbank. His efforts to save her sister and her mother failed. The sister froze to death in his arms, and the mother died of cold while clinging to a tree. The glare from the burning boat and the screams of the victims aroused the inhabitants of Nahaola, a landing some 30 miles below Demopolis, and they hurried to the river to give what help they could. In the group was James Eskridge, who commandeered a skiff, the only one available, and paddled through the freezing storm to rescue survivors from treetops, from floating cotton bales, and from the edge of the water. For hour after endless hour, he maneuvered the small boat through the dark water, looking for survivors. Some witnesses credited him with bringing as many as 100 persons to safety. Meanwhile, as news of the tragedy spread, planters from nearby plantations arrived with their skilled workmen who hastily built rafts and joined in the rescue operation. Later, these carpenters made rough coffins for the dead. People on the bank lighted huge bonfires to provide illumination for the rescuers and warmth for the nearly frozen survivors. As they were saved from the river, the passengers were taken to the large home of Mrs. Rebecca Coleman Pettigrew, where the house itself and all the outbuildings were converted into makeshift hospitals for the care of the injured and the ill. At one time, 75 persons were being cared for by Mrs. Pettigrew, her family, and her servants. All of her teams and wagons were assigned to hauling wood for the roaring fires, which kept the cold from claiming additional victims. Huge cauldrons of soup bubbled day and night to provide food for the survivors. For almost a week, Mrs. Pettigrew gave her full time to the care of her guests, doing everything possible for their comfort until their families could come for them. When the weather finally cleared and the river began to recede, the mournful task of recovering the bodies of the dead was completed. Nobody knows exactly how many lives were lost in the disaster. Some say 29, some say more than 50, but they all agree that the burning of the Eliza battle was probably the greatest tragedy in Alabama's river history. For years afterward, people who lived close to the river 
who loved her and understood her moods, said the ghost of the Eliza battle still plied the Bigby's waters. On stormy nights, they said, they saw the great steamer rise up out of the troubled water. The boat, they said, was ablaze from bow to stern, so brightly lighted that the name Eliza Battle could be read plainly on even the darkest nights. And always there was music, dancing tunes, providing a background for the shrieks of terror and cries for help that came from the phantom vessel. Tales about the ghost vessel became a part of traditional Tom Bigby River lore. Most often, these apparitions were seen by crewmen of tugs and barges, and when these rivermen reached Mobile, they usually began looking for jobs ashore, safer employment away from the threatening river. Sometimes, speaking cautiously, they would describe the ghost ship to friends along the waterfront, and their listeners, rivermen like themselves, would nod with understanding. For they had seen the Eliza battle, too. <laughs> you can hear Catherine Tucker Wyndham's tales of Alabama folklore in our Sundial Writer's Corner. Catch a new episode every Monday morning at 9. This is the Public Radio Hour on 89.3 Huntsville, produced in the studios of WLRH. I'm Katie Ganaway. As part of our ongoing fall fun drive, you can also pick up your own copy of Catherine Tucker Wyndham's Jeffrey's Favorite 13 Ghost Stories for a pledge of just $72 or become a sustaining member at $6 a month or more. Just go to WLRH.org and click the blue donate button to get started. And remember to leave a light on for Jeffrey before you nod off to dreamland. We now turn our ears to a dramatic original piece from Theatre Huntsville performed by Gina Rodden and written by the theater's production manager, Melissa Bertie jones This harrowing tale is sure to jolt you from your slumber. Don't lose your heads. Here comes Aunt Jenny. Jenny by Melissa Birdie Jones. When you see a name etched in granite, beneath the accompanying dates and images of praying hands or flying doves, sometimes you'll see affectionate and reminiscent epithets. Mama, Bubba, devoted father, beloved wife. The subscript on the tombstone of Jane Brooks Johnson in Poplar Spring Cemetery has no such addendums. Instead, it simply reads, at rest. But perhaps it should read, at rest at last. For in her 98 years, if stories from those who knew her are to be believed, she never rested a day in her life. And if ghost stories are to be believed, that engraving on Aunt Jenny's tombstone is a lie. Born Elizabeth Jane Baker in Kentucky in 1826, she was married at 14 to an older man by the name of Willis Brooks. Together, they established a tavern and a small inn at a crossroads in Winston County, Alabama in what is now Bankhead National Forest. And if running a business and surviving in the woods weren't enough, they also had nine children, six boys and three girls. 
By all accounts, they kept to themselves and minded their business. And if that had been all, Aunt Jenny might have lived and died with only the reputation of never turning away a person in need or having a knack for knowing just the thing for your aching back or upset stomach. Such was the way of scrappy Alabama mountain folk back then. <laughs> Without the sprawling cotton plantations to oversee and global trade to contend with, most people in the area of Winston County were disinterested in matters of national politics and economics. There were mouths to feed. There was wild forests to tend and local affairs to deal with. So needless to say, when the Civil War broke out, they were not keen on getting involved. To them, it was a conflict purely for the profit of agricultural industrialists, a rich man's war, but one that those rich men wanted poor men to fight for them so they could keep their cheap labor force of slaves on their plantations. That's not to say the poor whites of the Old South were all altruists. Rather, many saw slavery as a way plantation owners could get labor without paying wages for it, a sort of landlocked version of offshoring that kept the opportunities for both paid work and land ownership from impoverished whites. To be sure, there were those that objected to slavery on moral grounds, but whatever their motives, the mountain folk of Winston County were not at all sympathetic to the cause, even to the point of attempting to secede from the Confederacy and establish the free state of Winston. Of course, this did not go without reprisal from those who saw the war as a necessity to defend the freedom of the South. Bands of loosely organized vigilante militias formed throughout the fledgling Confederacy, operating with the blessing of the official Confederate Army. These home guards, as they were called, were to be the final line of defense against invading Union forces. But their duties until such an invasion were many and not entirely uniform or well-regulated. Some of the Home Guard activities included policing dissidents, spying on enemy troop movement, and rounding up undesirables such as deserters and Yankee sympathizers for punishment, which was often immediate and lethal. Like others in the free state of Winston, the Brooks family was not interested in helping fight for the South's independence and their recalcitrance brought a band of eight men from the Home Guard to their doorstep. Accounts vary on what offense the militia men sought to rectify. Some say Willis was helping house and triage Union soldiers and Confederate deserters, an endeavor Jenny was no doubt helping with, given her skill as a healer. Others say the Brooks family was dodging the taxes collected to fund the war. And some stories have it that the Home Guard had come to punish the men of the Brooks family for not fighting for the Confederacy, or perhaps to none too gently collect them for said duty. Whatever their reason, the visit from the home guard ended with Willis Brooks swinging limply from a tree and the eldest son, John, shot dead in the yard for trying to stop his father's lynching. And with a creak of rope and a crack of gunpowder, the mild-mannered Jane Brooks became the vengeful Aunt Jenny for she did not mourn in the fashion of most. Her grief took the form of violent retribution. The story goes that she took her remaining eight children, boys and girls alike, out into the yard where their slain father and brother lay in the grass. There in the broad light of the sun with her youngest on her hip, 
Jenny had her children wash their hands in the blood of their fallen kin and vowed that they would not lay their mother's bones to rest until those eight men from the home guard were dead by their hands. Aunt Jenny saw to it that her children were well equipped for the task she'd bound them to carry out. She trained them to shoot, trained them to survive in the mountains, and no doubt instilled in them a bone-deep fear of her wrath should they fail to uphold their blood oath. The facts of what transpired after this are shady, as feuds neighboring families, mismatched or missing records, and local legends shroud the truth. Some recountings continue to paint Aunt Jenny as a pillar of the rural Winston County community who saw to healing the sick and never missed a Sunday at the Missionary Baptist Church. But others contend that her desire for revenge, it changed her. There are claims that she kept score of their kills, cutting notches into her walking stick. Some say she had her children bring her the heads of the home guard as proof of their success. And in one such tale, she boils a skull down to the bone for use as an ashtray. In another, she uses the skull to wash her hands on her deathbed, breathing her last before the water could dry from her withered skin. And most chillingly of all, her children ultimately failed in their quest. The last member of the home guard group that murdered Willis Brooks wisely fled the area never to be seen again. And Aunt Jenny nearly kept up her side of the bargain, outliving all but one of her nine children and dying at the age of 98, oath still unfulfilled. Certainly enough to make anyone restless. Though the tale of the vengeance of Aunt Jenny is well known, so are stories of her self-sufficiency, generosity, and good character, blood oaths notwithstanding. Those who knew her claimed that she kept to herself and looked out for those around her, including caring for stepchildren from a later marriage and many grandchildren and great-grandchildren. A story goes that she was once asked about how she had enough money to live so comfortably out in the woods alone, and she replied, I pay myself $20 a week to mind my own business. Perhaps if the home guard had minded their business and kept out of the woods in Winston County, the story of Aunt Jenny and the Brooks clan would have been a kinder one. But it was not to be. So if you don't tarry when you're passing by the ruins of the Brooks house in Bankhead National Forest, you won't draw her ire either. But stop for a spell, especially at night. You'll likely have a story to tell about green lights winking in the trees. Overstay your welcome there. And you won't be the first to hear the shrieks of a restless Aunt Jenny telling you to get off her property. Lest she send her children after you. I don't know about you, but I never want to walk in the woods alone again. That was Aunt Jenny, an installment of Theodore Huntsville's series, Stories by Ghostlight. Feel the chill down your spine intensify when you watch the video version of this performance and more in this virtual production series on the Theater Huntsville YouTube channel. 
Longtime contributor to the Sundial Writer's Corner, Sarah McDerris, takes us on a night ride with a weary wallflower and her undead husband in a traditional Scottish tale, Never Again. It was beginning to get dark now. She could hear the harpers talking as they tuned up their harps. In the distance, the pipers had their drones sounding. An occasional melody slipped out. She decided to settle in the bushes now instead of waiting until the dancing started. She sat out of sight, thinking about how different last Midsummer's Eve had been. She and Frances had led the dance. The tears started sliding down her face again. It was strange how the tears came, when in front of other people they stopped of their own accord, at least for a little while. But when she was alone, they appeared unbidden and unstoppable. She saw Jamie and Vivian come down toward the crossroad. Soon the whole village would be dancing right there in the middle of the road. As the short night passed, dancing, singing, flirting, and merriment would reign. Jamie and Vivian had passed without realizing she was there. That was good. A woman with a broken heart need not be at the dance, could not for pain be at the dance. She drew her light woolen shawl closer, noting how the green and blue colors of the tartan blurred as the light filled. Now everyone had come and the musicians were playing a reel. A dog sniffed her out, but no one paid attention. They were too busy having a good time, dancing and singing, laughing, enjoying the festivities. Last Midsummer's Eve. They made their vows to one another that night. Francis had found another fisherman to take his place on the boat so he could be with her for the dance. It had been a night of enchantment. Too short, of course. That was part of the dream, the charm, the wonder. They had filled that short length of darkness with love and desire and promise. Now the Harpers began another tune. Ah, she and Francis had danced to that one. The tears flowed again. He had gone back to the fishing after that night. Word came that a storm had taken the boat and all the men. It happened way up north near Kyle. Local people had pulled up the bodies that had washed ashore. They sent word that a decent burial had been given to each man. Never to see him again. Never to even know where he was buried never to feel the promise of that night. Would she never stop crying? The dancers and players had stopped for a rest. She felt the vibration before she heard the sound. A horse was coming. As soon as she saw him, she knew it was Francis. Riding a black horse, he wore a broad-brimmed black hat and had a black cloak slung around him. The way he sat his horse proved who he was. He rode directly to her, dismounting. She could see his brightly burning eyes as he reached for her hand. The harper started again, and he'd led her into the dance. Though it was a long time before dawn, he pulled her to his horse. Their dancing had been filled with sheer poetry. No word had been spoken between them. 
Indeed, no word was needed between them. Yet he swung her up on his horse, mounted and dashed up the road, leaving as he had come. But now she was with him, willingly ride away up north. She was having a hard time holding on to Francis. He was wet, and her hands kept slipping from around him. Weariness filled her, but there were no tears. Her crying was over. It was getting colder. Frances seemed cold. She drew her shawl closer, hoping to get warm. She noticed a smell. It was faint, but she knew it was from a dead animal. Well, they would pass it soon enough. But the smell grew stronger. The stars faded one by one. As the light brightened in the east, as the birds began their morning chorus, Frances began to laugh a deep, dark sound that set a thrill of fear through her. He rode at a faster, more careless pace, and out of his laughter he began to talk. Flinging his head around, he cried, Yes, now I will stop all that crying, all that wailing that kept me uneasy in the grave. She turned her head so she could see him. Instead of a man, she was embracing a skeleton. Where she had seen dark, piercing eyes at the dance were now dark, empty holes. She then knew what she had been smelling. She knew why she was wet. And in an instant, she knew the cause of this night ride, her unrelenting grief. She cried out, Breed, Mother Goddess, guide me. In a moment of grace, she remembered her grandmother's words. If one returns from the dead for you, you have only one opportunity to escape. The ghost cannot function after the first crow of the cock. With her life coming to an end, she understood clearly that moment to stay alive was upon her. Francis spurred the horse off the road behind a small kirk. He slid off behind an open grave. Grabbing both wrists, he began pulling her in as he jumped into the grave. Terrified, she struggled, and overwhelming fright gave her the strength to jerk free, except for the hold on one wrist. Francis was laughing. Now I'll have you with me, and maybe I can finally rest in peace. Still, she couldn't break free. He now had her shawl as well as her wrist, and she was slowly being pulled toward him into the grave. The first piercing beam of the morning sun cut through the sky, and she heard the cry of the cock. With a fierce pull, she freed herself as Francis fell backwards with a loud, Ah! A milkmaid found her by the side of the road. Taking her home, the family cared for her for a fortnight as she went in and out of consciousness, babbling about Francis in the night ride. It was only when she recovered her senses that she could relate to them her ride to the grave. The family shook their heads in wonder. Was she still out of her head? Going outside, she saw the kirk. She took them to the grave. There, to her surprise and their amazement, a blue and green tartan shawl was partially buried in the mud atop that grave. She turned her back on the grave, and never again did she cry for her lost love. 
Before retiring, Sundial writer Sarah McDerris produced a children's show for Alabama Public Television and was on the initial staff here at WLRH. She spent 34 years telling wondrous stories for the Huntsville Public Library and created a storytelling group called the Spellbinders. This is the Public Radio Hour, produced in the studios of WLRH Huntsville Public Radio. I'm Katie Ganaway, bringing you our final spellbinding segment of this year's Halloween spooktacular, so to speak. Tonight we've heard about ghosts, haints, and haunts, and now we switch gears to reality. Conductors and producers of the world-renowned choir from Oakwood University, the Aeolians, Jason Max Ferdinand and Stephen Murphy sat down with Morning Blend host Dory Nutt to talk about the choir's new self-titled CD. They also recount the night the whole ensemble lost everything to a vehicle collision and a bus fire. Thankfully, everything except their lives. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand, Assistant Professor and Director of Choral Activities at Oakwood University, located right here in Huntsville. Welcome, Jason. Thank you so much, Dory. And also joining us is Stephen Murphy, Assistant Director and Producer of the new Aeolians CD that we're going to be talking about. Welcome. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Well, we're here today to talk about one of the choral groups that you direct, Jason, the world-famous Aeolians. This group has released a marvelous new CD, and we're thrilled to be offering this as one of our thank you gifts for the WLRH Fall Fun Drive. Let's start by talking about the Aeolians, and I hesitate to call them just a choir. (laughs) Tell us who makes up this group and what makes it so special to audiences everywhere. The Aeolians, which was started in 1946, has always been made up of undergraduate students. Let's say that again, undergraduate students. People hear them and kind of forget that sometimes. Um, what makes them so special? I think um, the integrity and the openness and transparency in which they deliver the music. I think that's what kind of shines through the most when people hear them sing and see them sing and meet them in person after they sing or before they sing. So I think I think that's that's one of the key factors and characteristics of the group. Your group has performed all over the world and also all over the US at the biggest, most famous musical venues like Carnegie Hall and the Kennedy mm-hmm. Center. I can't imagine all the hard work that goes into this level of music making. Tell us a little about your rehearsals and also the personal responsibilities of the young musicians in the Aeolians. Right. So a regular schedule, you know, pre-COVID and hopefully (laughs) post-COVID, typically we meet three times a week for about two hours each, although as the years go by, kind of we always finish early Hmm. when the students love that. But um, so about six hours on average per week. And over the years, too, I can proudly say that many of the students keep, maintain amazing GPAs. Um, matter of fact, just in last year, we had one girl who graduated, Samalo Carroll, graduated a 4.0, and she oh. was in Aeolians for, what, Steve, two years, three yeah. years, something like that? Yeah. And she's now at Georgetown Law School, and <laughs> we've had students going to Harvard Dental School. So mm-hmm. I think the culture over the last three years, at least in my tenure, I could only speak to that, um, the students know and are always challenged to uh, be their best academically and, and everything else. because. Um, how we approach the choir is really a, like a life lesson in tool building, and you could take those tools and apply it to whatever your major is. So 
the science science majors come in and we learn principles all along in choir, teamwork, endurance, perseverance. So they take that with them and maintain pretty pretty good GPAs. Can we talk for you just for a moment, Jason Max Ferdinand? You're an alumnus of Oakwood University, right? I am, I am. And then you went on to get your doctorate at the University of Maryland, studying with a choral teacher who was a protege of the great Robert Shaw. Mm -hmm. And your orchestral conducting teacher was a pupil of Kurt Masur and Leonard (laughs) Bernstein. Wow, that sounds pretty impressive. What a lineage, right? (laughs) Are there one or two things that you learned from them that you Mm -hmm. carry into your preparation or your rehearsals or your concerts that you can tell us about? Definitely, um, on a daily basis. Ed McClary, who was a protege of Robert Shaw, provided for me what I needed at that point in my career, which was an amazing sense of structure and um, planning. I mean, Ed McClary would have his rehearsal plans for an entire semester when we walked to the door in August. Now, of course, it would, it would get changed and tweaked as we went, but fact that he had everything so well thought out and what warm-ups and how long I want to spend on this phrase. And blah, down blah, blah. to the minute. Yeah. Down to the minute. Yeah. And um, that was something I've just never seen before. Mm-hmm. And and that's just a you know, tip of the iceberg of Ed McClary, but, but he provided for me a greater sense of discipline and nuts and bolts of, of everything I do. Because for me, I think one of my strengths is the um, a lot about natural feel and, and instinct. And that's good, but coupled with discipline and nuts and bolts, I think makes a very, very good combination. So Ed McClary was that for me. James Ross, very good disciplinarian too, but he was the opposite of Ed McClary, a very unorthodox approach to his music making. Un- totally unorthodox. Um, he never referred to a textbook. Everything was about the score, all these strange... Like, for example, you, you played French horn. Uh, one entire semester at Maryland... Professor Ross came out to conduct with a twig. <laughs> and he believed that the twig was shaped, which kind of went to the flow of your hand. I mean, that's how we, that's how we, uh, his mind worked. And um, so he provided like the complete opposite to Ed McClary, which was a very, very unique combination. What a background, though. Yeah. What a lot to build on. Well, I have a copy of this new CD that we're so proud to offer as the thank you gift for donors here at WLRH. Why don't we listen to a little music from it? What what track would you suggest? And I'll, I'll ask you, Steve, and because you're, <laughs> you're the producer of this CD. What's, what's your favorite track on here? Oh, man. Uh, one of my favorite tracks off that album is a composition by one of my former teachers, uh, Dr. Cedric Dent, Examine Me. Um, I think it's a great piece that he composed. He's the former baritone of the Grammy Award-winning group Take Six. And uh, so it's, it's near and dear to my heart for sure. Okay, so we'll take a moment to listen to Examine Me.
that was Examine Me, performed by the world-renowned Aeolians Choir from right here in Huntsville, Alabama. They're part of the program at Oakwood University, and we have their two directors, Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand and Stephen Murphy, sitting here with us today. The Aeolians specialize in a broad range of repertoire, everything from Baroque to 21st century contemporary music. Stephen, how did you choose what to put on this CD that you recently released? And I'm sure it was a collaboration <laughs> between Absolutely. several of you, but how did you decide? Uh, you know, there's some history to the selection on this album. Uh, Jason and I, <laughs> we get together in, in, um, over lunch or in his office, wherever, wherever the location is, and we kind of brainstorm through repertoire and, cr- and try to you know, set the mood for the occasion. So this particular uh, song list actually dates back to, um, man, what do you say, Jason? Maybe last summer almost, or we began that maybe? Yeah, or right. early fall, yeah. something like that. Preparing for NCCO. Yeah. yeah, so there was a convention... Um, in Maryland, um, title NCCO. What can you remind me? National Collegiate Choral Organization. Right. So a lot of that song list stemmed from that particular uh, concert. Mm-hmm. So you know we were brainstorming, as Jason calls it, the the war room, <laughs> and we'll go back and forth and then try to figure out. Oh no, this is the song. No, we should pick try out this. the perfect mix yeah. for so, this. Yeah. So um, and Jason's such a genius at programming. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's an absolute genius at it. So, um, so that's where that track list kind of stems from, from. We collaborated for those months and kind of put it together. And it's like, you know, let's let's take this now and, and record these pieces because they perform so well. Your group, the Aeolians, was the 2017 Choir of the World winner and mm-hmm. won several gold medals at the World Choir Games held in South Africa in 2018. What on earth is it like to plan for a trip like this? I mean, <laughs> logistically, you've got international travel for a large group yeah. of college-age students. And, and further, when you do this, what do you hope to take out into the world when you take these young musicians out? Oh, great, great questions. Vilroy McBean serves as our manager and deals with a lot of uh, with all of the logistics. And mm-hmm. Vilroy is a world traveler himself, so he loves putting together trips of this nature. So he he takes care of all of that. So Steve and myself, we can kind of focus on the musical, creative side of things. Mm-hmm. Um, the preparation for these things are always very very long long-term processes, right? So we start in August, and if we know we have something coming up the next summer, you know, you can't all pack everything in one go. So we, we kind of slowly build, build, build. And I'm, I'm kind of like a basketball coach in a sense where it's, I'm learning now so much more than just the music. So the team building aspect of that preparation process is key. So for example, in 2017, um, we all read a book together that was called Relentless by Tim Grover. Tim Grover was the uh, trainer for Michael Jordan and oh. Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade and really got into their minds the value of hard work and process and, and, and being very, very strategic. So imagine a choir was reading this book and mm-hmm. talking about this book. So our process was very, very strategic. Um, very, very exacting. Um, in these competitions, you can't leave any stone unturned. And what do we hope to take to the world? Really, you know, p- part of it initially in these competitions was to kind of show the world, one, who we were. I mean, we're in Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, the Aeolians belong to Oakwood University, which is part of the Seventh-day Adventist tradition. And sometimes 
it could be a tad insular and people on the outside don't know about this great thing that we have so part of the goal was just to kind of take it out there and i guess secondly in no particular order to kind of show that hey we can sing more than just a negro spiritual because mm-hmm. pe- people see an all black choir and they presume you're going to sing some gospel or negro spiritual mm-hmm. when in fact we probably do you know hardly any gospel at all right really <laughs> mm-hmm. maybe one percent of our repertoire it's right mm-hmm. half percent, yeah. Yeah. you know we sing spirituals but you know we like to think of ourselves as being able to sing whatever we put our minds to so th- those are the kind of big picture goals mm-hmm. yeah. and it all goes back to that planning <laughs> way exactly. in advance yeah. right yeah well, if you're just tuning in, I'm Morning Blend host Dory Nutt speaking with Dr. Jason Max Ferdinand and Stephen Murphy, their choral directors of the world-renowned Aeolians, one of the choirs in residence at Oakwood University that's just a couple of miles from here, <laughs> from our studios here at WLRH. And we're here talking about the choir, their travels around the world, and the acclaim that follows them wherever they go. But I want to talk about a special concert that you performed last fall right here in Huntsville. It was actually put together in honor of the Aeolians by choral conductor Billy Orton. And it followed a devastating event that occurred on one of your tours out in California, mm-hmm. I believe. Would you like to tell us about that? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll pass the baton to Steve on this one because he was actually on that coach uh, the group was basically split in two for that trip as we flew to San Francisco and um, um, group one I was with group one and we, we got to San Francisco early that evening the coach dropped us off to a hotel and uh, spun around and went back to the airport to pick up group two which Steve was on that bus I let him take it from there and and so um, as Jason said the, the bus came and we were on group two and that was about um about 11 p.m. or so, maybe a little closer to midnight, uh, when that charter bus came and, and uh, gathered us. We got on the bus, and we were riding. I actually had my head down at the moment looking at my phone, and I could hear our manager, Vilroy McBean, telling the bus driver, watch it. Then he said it again, watch it. Uh-huh. And I heard him a third time. He said, watch it. And so when I looked up, I said, what's going on here? In the distance, you could see... An object, you couldn't tell exactly what it was, but it was under the underpass on the highway. And sure enough, um, we T-boned an SUV. Oh. And I was I was the seat, a friend of mine and I were on the seat right behind the driver. And we hit the, the SUV, and I said, I know that that gentleman in that car has to be dead. Cause I saw him slump over. And then he popped back up. And so our, our, our manager, Vrua, he stood up and asked if everyone was okay. And as he stood up to ask that question, we got hit again um, from the rear. We got rear-ended. And unfortunately, the gentleman who, who hit that bus, um, he didn't survive. But um, our manager was swift in getting us off the bus, and he got us off just in time because shortly after that, the bus actually caught fire, and all that was left the next day was just a, a mere shell of that bus so we were truly blessed to to escape death we attribute that to god and um we're just thankful to be here now well but in that accident your choir members lost their music oh, their luggage their their concert attire everything yeah yep, it, it yep. was a huge i mean i'm sure it was a huge physical and emotional hit but also financial it so was. so i guess billy orton put this concert yeah. together so billy reached out to, to to me and suggested you know what i want to put this concert together and um, i'm going to call various choirs from the community and instrumentalists and 
He put together an amazing program. I believe he had, I don't know, 300, 400 singers mm-hmm. up in the loft and big orchestra. And it was called Beauty From Ashes or something yeah. like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. We're truly grateful for what Billy Orton and the community did for us and, and First Baptist. You know, he didn't have to do that, but um, oh. it was well. a great, great gesture and we very, very, very much appreciate it. I was actually in attendance at that concert, and it was just glorious. The, the enormous sanctuary there at First Baptist yeah. filled to the brim with, yes. with music yes. lovers and supporters of right. the Aeolians. And, and I have to say, all the other choirs sang, and they were wonderful. We heard so much great music, and then the Aeolians stepped on the stage, mm-hmm. and people who had never heard you before live got mm-hmm. to hear yeah what it is that makes the aliens different. I mean, not just your technique, your musicality, your intonation, your dynamic range, everything there was on full display. And, and it's on the CD as well, if, <laughs> if you want to hear it on the CD. I, I wanted to mention again that, that this recently released CD is one of our thank you gifts to donors this year as part of our fall fund drive here at WLRH. And you can find out more about that on our website, WLRH.org when you click the blue donate button. Now the CD is self-titled, right? It's called The Aeolians. But I notice on the spine here, or Mm -hmm. underneath, it says comfort amidst the crisis. Is that your goal with this CD? Definitely, and you're a very great observer uh, (laughs) because a lot of people miss that small detail. You know, I think something that people love to know is that we recorded this project and it was probably about four or five days after when school totally shut down because of COVID. Uh, I mean, we had no idea that that was coming. Um, So if we had scheduled this project to be recorded a week later, it probably would never happen. What also is kind of uncanny is that um, so many of the songs on the project seem to speak to everything we've experienced this summer and and even now. Um, Who who would have thought that uh, um, We Shall Overcome would be uh, anthem coming back because of what's going on in society and uh, then a song like we remember them mm-hmm. with you know 210,000 plus people dead because of a silent killer that so so many of these songs seem to speak to what's going on now so we recorded a project before covid but the production and putting together the cover and everything else happened during COVID. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we thought it'd be a nice gesture to put that little note on the spine comfort amidst everything that we're going through now. You've just heard a rousing conversation with our own Dory Nutt and some exceptionally gifted PSA partners of ours, Oakwood University conductors and producers Jason Max Ferdinand and Stephen Murphy. Aside from the spookiness of tonight, we are grateful the Aeolians are okay, and we want to remind you that you can enjoy their collective ethereal voices anytime you like on their new self-titled CD, featuring a wide repertoire of choral music. That's available when you pledge online during our fall fun drive. The website is wlrh.org. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Public Radio Hour, produced in the studios of WLRH Huntsville Public Radio. I'm your ghost host, Katie Canaway. Please note that we are not liable for any spooks that may have slinked through your radio and into your homes during this program, nor any figures that may appear in the mist on your front lawn this evening. 
If you dare, you can find this show podcasted on the WLRH Facebook and Twitter pages at WLRH.org and on the WLRH mobile app. Be sure to share it with a friend if you enjoyed. And remember to stay safe, stay healthy, and... Pleasant screams. It was tricky, tricky, couldn't treat.